This is Tony Speaks, and this is my lovely wife, Kim. We are the founders and co-creators of the lifestyle brand and podcast, Becoming Disciplined. Every week we meet, learn from, and share best practices with highly disciplined men and women from a variety of fields and endeavors. Follow us on our journey. You know, one, stay true to yourself. Um, learn about the people around you and take nuggets from everyone you cross paths with, whether that is a negative experience that you're learning from or whether that's a positive experience. There's, there's a learning opportunity in everything that you do. Um, but for me, it's almost, I, I kind of say it's a, it's a three or four P approach. Like surround yourself with good people, be passionate about whatever you're doing, I combine that with process because I think everything that leads to achievement has a process behind it that you should be able to verbalize and visualize in order to realize. And then if you can do those three P's, people, passion, and process, you get performance. Mm -hmm. And that performance or that outcome is, you know, whatever you've defined it to be. This week, we are honored to dialogue with Dr. Sarah Calvaric. Dr. Calvaric holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Elementary and Special Education from the State University of New York at Geneseo, a Master's degree in Administration and Supervision, and a Doctorate in Educational Leadership, both from the Virginia Commonwealth University. She also serves as an Adjunct Associate Professor at the University of Richmond. The doctor began her career in Hanover County Public Schools in 1997 where she served as a special and general education teacher at the elementary and middle school levels. In 2002, she began her 11-year career as an elementary assistant principal and principal. In 2013, she was named Director of Human Resources for Spotsylvania County Public Schools, where she worked collaboratively with colleagues and stakeholders to oversee the full spectrum of HR services and programs. When Dr. Calvaric began employment with Caroline County Public Schools in 2016, she charted a course with the instructional leadership team that resulted in Caroline County Public Schools moving from 40% fully accreditation to 80% fully accredited in only two years. In 2018, Dr. Sarah Calvaric was appointed as the superintendent of Caroline County Public Schools where she has inspired and encouraged both students and teachers alike. Sarah Malet Calvaric has the work ethic of Kobe Bryant, the communication skills of Oprah Winfrey, and the warmth and empathy of a mom who cares about her teachers and students in a personal way. But most importantly, this week, Dr. Sarah Calvaric, the super, is on Becoming Disciplined. Today on Becoming Disciplined, we interview Dr. Sarah Calvaric. Dr. Calvaric, welcome to Becoming Disciplined. Good afternoon, Tony. I'm excited to be with you to talk further about some of the attributes of becoming disciplined and how that has impacted my life. Awesome, awesome. Now, we're honored to have you, and I can tell my audience, this is a very special interview for me because I have worked with Marines, I've worked with NCIS, I've worked with Special Forces, and the highest of high performers the elite of the elite, and I also had the opportunity to observe Dr. Calvaric's work for over a year. And Dr. Calvaric, you are one of the most disciplined people that I have ever witnessed in person. 
You are truly a Navy SEAL of educators. So I'm really honored to have you on the on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. You've, you've uh, filled my bucket for the day or added to my emotional bank account. Those deposits are meaningful. And um, I think that you failed to say how um, we worked collaboratively during that year to get the goodness of Caroline County Public Schools out to the community. And it really is a collective effort. So um, my kudos back at you in terms of your discipline with communication of, of school occurrences. Okay, well, thank you so much. And, uh, and I, I'll just say that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really an honor. And one, the only challenge I can find with this show is the most disciplined people are also very disciplined with their time. So to get the, to get the most disciplined people, it's hard to get them for an hour. So I want to definitely respect your time. But doctor, before we hear about your current endeavors, it would benefit our audience to understand your context. Context is everything. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? You know, it's interesting in receiving some of your questions in advance, it really caused me to pause and reflect about my own personal journey. I think that everyone has a story to share or a personal narrative and how you see the world is really created by those experiences and the exposure that you have. And I am the first to say um, that in Looking back on my upbringing, one, I was extremely blessed. Um, my household was very supportive. I came from a, a family that had a working father and initially um, a stay-at-home mother who transitioned after having three children into the workforce. Um, I grew up in very northern New York, um, the St. Lawrence River, until about fourth grade in a small town called Thousand Islands. Very beautiful, but extremely cold. And as if that wasn't cold enough, we then relocated um, to follow my father's professional career to Buffalo, New York. And I really attribute my upbringing and my formative years to my time in the Buffalo area. But Tony, I say something, and this is not intended to sound fancy or um, to be um, anything flashy, but I grew up on an island in the middle of the Niagara River called Grand Island, and there were about 20,000 people. It was a very Caucasian upbringing, not a lot of diversity associated with that. And then I proceeded to go to that was only about 42, 4,300 students um, in a small town. So again, transitioning from, you know, my K-12 environment into higher ed and living a, a very, um, very, I guess, um, not, I don't want to use the word privilege. That is not what I'm, I'm trying to insinuate. But I recognize that I was surrounded by a lot of opportunity that I, I like to think I took advantage of and worked really hard um, to achieve. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, I would never have known that you grew up in an environment, you know, because you seem you, you are you seem very open to other you know, you, 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 you seem like you work really hard, at, you know, being open to everyone. So I would never have known that you grew up in, the, in an environment like that. that that's, 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 Thank uh, you. Yeah. That's a great compliment. I love hearing that because I think cultural competence is a continuum. Sure. And I recognize, and nor should anyone ever arrive. If you've, if you've arrived in cultural competence, I think that means that you've shut your learning down. But I think that that is a continuous lifelong journey that we're all on. And I'm proud to say that every division I've worked in after graduating has really helped me grow um, and recognize where maybe some potential blind spots or just some innate um, matters I had because of my upbringing. So all about a growth 
Amen. Amen. Now, uh, when you were a child, was there someone who inspired you with their level of discipline? You know, I would have to say that my mother and father have been and continue to be really instrumental for two very um, distinct reasons. My father was the professional in the in our house in relation to a career path, and he was always extremely driven. He would work very long hours, and he would come home and he would tell us tales about um, new experiences he had or um, just professional opportunities that added to his toolbox. And so, as the youngest of three children, I remember processing that and you know putting those experiences in my back pocket of this was a success he had and how can I replicate that versus here was a pitfall and how can I avoid that? And then I had the luxury of watching my brother and sister who are six and seven years older than me make college decisions and life choices and to also learn from their successes and less than desirable outcomes. So I really think that my dad instilled a tremendous work ethic and my mom was and is a tremendous nurturer and her ability to operate a household and to navigate three children's social calendars and athletics and um, different organizations that we were associated with was an art form. And so I think that helps me develop any level of balance that I've tried to strike, I think really stems from those roots. Awesome, awesome. Now, when did you uh, when did you know that you wanted to be an educator and when did you fall in love with public education? So I think education found me versus me finding education. Um, okay. If you ask my family or my close high school friends what I thought I was going to be, it would have been a path to medicine. I really love the servant leadership and, and the service industry, which I think really reflects public education. But as a student, I was passionate about science and about people and wanting to um, potentially be an ER doctor. I like things that are ever evolving and constantly changing and problem solving. And so I was an athlete. I played volleyball and softball. And there was an opportunity that came about my senior year of high school, excuse me, my junior year that would impact my senior choices. And that was a regional um, interview where we could ultimately achieve an internship our senior year. But to complete the internship, you had to basically eliminate all other after-school activities. And so I had made the choice that I wasn't going to be the, the next best softball player uh, recruited at the college level, and I gave up my senior year of softball. And I went into an internship in a local emergency room. And at the time, this was, goodness, probably 1992, 1993. I graduated in 93 from high school. And every physician in that ER, Tony, was a male. And so I wasn't astute enough to recognize the gender dynamic, nor were my parents guiding me as this transpired. But every doctor I spoke to was very open to having conversation with me, but almost all conversations resulted in, do you want to have a family? And my answer was an immediate yes. And they said, well, this is not the career path for you. We are never home. 
So I started to kind of stew over that and realized, you know, maybe I should look at an alternate arm of the medical field. And so I switched my internship um, at the semester mark and I went into physical therapy. Mm. And I always joke that I'm a girl that loves to mow the lawn, right? You get immediate feedback. I like to paint a room. It instantly looks better. Right. That is not the world of physical therapy. Physical (laughs) therapy is slow and methodical and patient and progress over time. And that to me wasn't, wasn't filling my bucket. Mm. So I then decided, you know, the things I like about medicine also parallel the fact that I was a babysitter. I was a day camp director for a YMCA day camp. You know, I was a, a nanny. And so I like the change that occurs with working with kids. I like the servant leadership, the people aspect. And that is truly how I ended up in education. So I say education found me because I think it was a purposeful process of elimination. And then, of course, God has a plan. So. Amen, amen, amen. Now, do you ever miss the classroom? Does it, you know, like, does that, does that bother you not being able to be in the classroom regularly? Every single day. And so I really pride myself in being visible. I think that's a key factor of leadership. And I think one of the amazing um, aspects of Caroline County Public Schools is that we're small enough that I get to know people as people and professionals. Mm. So visibility in the classroom, um, that definitely um, reignites my fire. It's my true north. It helps remind me that every decision I make needs to be centered around students and and teachers and and our employees. Um, but I also teach at University of Richmond. Um, I've been an adjunct professor there for seven years, and that is my outlet for the actual art of teaching. I'm able to craft lesson plans and pull in relevant learning experiences and true trench stories with anonymity, of course, no, no confidential information provided. Um, and I'm like a sponge. I learn just as much from them as I hope they're garnering from me. And you know my twenty four years of of public education. Awesome, awesome. Now this next question is around the area where I am the most jealous of you, and it's your strongest. I think just just as an outsider, uh, your strongest, most disciplined area is. And the question is, were you were always a skilled orator in high school? Because and let me just tell the audience, I've seen Dr. Calvaric speak to broad audiences for you know, have, have to give speeches that are both extemporaneous and then also planned. And she never seems to put her foot in her mouth. She always is very, you know, like she, she you know, like Dr. Calvary, it seems like her words, there's a scripture that says that, you know, the words carefully uh, chosen and, and words carefully used. And you never, you, you're always very wise about, you know, knowing how to speak without getting yourself in, you know, saying something stupid or saying something ignorant. Uh, you're kind of really good with your words. Has um, did that start like in debate school in high school, or or was that from mom? How did you how did you develop that skill? You know, this is the first time I've ever really paused and taken a moment to contemplate that idea of where did that skill or that attribute begin to develop, and I I really attribute. Um, I guess my first acknowledgement or recognition of it as an adult looking back to my fifth grade teacher, Noreen Flaherty. 
Maureen, and this is a six degree of Kevin Bacon scenario that I'm going to give you in like a 30 sec, a 30 second elevator spiel. Noreen was on Grand Island and her husband, Bill, was also an educator. And um, she was an educator who was so stellar, far beyond the time period in that she was really doing project-based learning and using Bloom's taxonomy, which is a, a technical um, word for educators that has like not a hierarchy, but a, a leveled system of, of verbs, meaning you're going you're gonna to apply, you're going to analyze, you're going to create. So all of these action-oriented tasks that go along with learning. And I happened to be blessed by being in her classroom. And she had each of us choose a passion area, of which I chose being a physician. And then we were to craft these large-scale year-long projects. And I remember a culminating activity that had me crafting a series of interview questions and going to University of Buffalo, UB, and interviewing a, a medical professor. And I think back to the excitement that I felt rather than the anxiety and nerves that, you know, typically a student in fifth grade, you're 10 or 11, would, would likely feel and just how energized and prepared I felt. And I think that that has really been one of kind of the fundamental bricks and mortar of, of my career is that, you know, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And when I go into a scenario where I know I'll be tasked with speaking um, on a specific topic, I do my homework. When I'm interviewing, whether it was for my first job at Fantasy Island, which is an amusement park, <laughs> I, I talked myself through what types of questions are they going to ask? What do I believe about that question? Um, what practice have I had or example of real world relevancy can I pair with that? And so I have that self-talk that I think I really recognized in that fifth grade experience with Noreen Flaherty, who I need to circle back and share, moved from Buffalo. It was her last fifth grade class. She moved to Richmond, Virginia. Oh, wow. and when I got hired as a first year teacher in Hanover, I walked into Hanover's central office. Her husband was working there and walked me out to her classroom. Oh my Talk goodness. about full circle moment. She looked at me and knew who I was, but could not remember my name. It was <laughs> 10, 15 years later. Wow. So. Small world. Small, yes. small world. Yes. Now, now, I think this is this next question, even though I admire your public speaking, uh, this next question might be the most valuable question I can ask you. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I tested well, you know, in, in elementary school, but then I hit junior high and uh, no one really sat me down and gave me good study habits and good structure. So eventually, you know, Parents were bragging on me when I was younger, you know, but then junior high hit and then eventually the poor study habits caught up with me. Right. Uh, you, you, you know, you have a doctorate and, 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 and I just want, and you've also been a lifelong educator. What advice can you give to our audience about how, if we have a 13 year old, a 12 year old, a 10 year old, how can we help them develop good study habits and what advice do you, do you have uh, for those parents that are trying to help their children uh, be structured enough so that they can go on and, and, and do well in college? So I think I would like to start by talking about my belief and the school division's belief in being 3E ready. 
and what that motto has meant to Caroline County Public Schools and a rural community that is experiencing some growth and likely will in, in the you know, coming years. And when I say 3E ready, we have a commitment to our graduates leaving and being enrolled, enlisted, or employed. And each of those facets requires a specific skill set. And I think that, you know, we have, uh, over the last couple of decades, we've really aligned all children's paths with enrollment. You need to go to a two-year college. You need to go to a four-year college. And you must master this, this, and this in order to be successful to get there. And for some children, that is absolutely the best option and what ignites their fire and is going to lead to their best self. For other children, that's enlistment. And so parents being open to reaching out to resources in the community, JROTC programs, setting up at a time to go and sit with a school counselor and to learn more about what enlistment means. And then, of course, to be employed. There are so many employable opportunities in our world that our students can be prepared for, beginning one with just investigation in elementary but then experiences in middle and then full immersion in the secondary high school nine through 12 realm. And so I think before you can even talk about specific skills, we need to ensure that our, our parent, grandparent, caretakers have an understanding of the three E paths. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And what courses, what experiences, what work-based learning do our kids have to have? Because once you're open to that, I think it gives you a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more grace and mercy, Sure. you know, when you hit some hurdles. Um, I think schools need to do an extremely um, robust um, job in communicating resources. We have wraparound resources, for social emotional learning, wraparound resources for academics, for um, health and wellness. We have these experts on staff. And so being open to hearing what's available, asking for assistance, that vulnerable bridge of saying, you know, we have a roadblock. Can we problem solve together around that? Um, and so I think schools doing a good job promoting, making things accessible, and parents recognizing that there are multiple paths to success. And Tony's and Sarah's don't have to look the same because guess what? They probably shouldn't look the same. We both have different needs. Sure. Um, and then just direct instruction. Some I have three kids. Two are innately organized. The third is not. Mm. And so parentally, I, my husband and I have had to do kind of a pedagogical shift in how we approach parenting because that what I thought maybe cookie cutter from child one to two to three hit an abrupt halt when number three came about. Fabulous, super successful in a variety of areas, but organization is not one of those gifted strengths. Sure. So, you know, we've had to do some direct instruction on organization, get a, get a calendar, revisit, you know, the homework board every single night. We've just done a different, almost like a tiered approach to support. Mm, that's good to know. That, yeah, I talk to a friend of mine and I tell him that uh, every kid has a, it's almost like a safe that needs to be unlocked and you have to kind of fiddle with the different combinations in order to unlock that that, that child's best uh, educational efforts. Yeah, crack their code. Yes. <laughs> now, if you could talk to 15-year-old 
uh, Sarah Mallette. Uh, is that the right? Mallette? It is. Okay. Good job. okay. <laughs> what would you tell her if you could time travel and talk to 15 year old? I think, you know, maybe two things, you know, one, stay true to yourself, um, learn about the people around you and take nuggets from everyone you cross paths with, whether that is a negative experience that you're learning from or whether that's a positive experience. There's, there's a learning opportunity in everything that you do. Um, but for me, it's almost, I, I kind of say it's a, it's a three or four P approach. Surround yourself with good people. Be passionate about whatever you're doing. I've combined that with process because I think everything that leads to achievement has a process behind it that you should be able to verbalize and visualize in order to realize. Sure. And then if you can do those three P's, people, passion, and process, you get performance. Mm. And that performance or that outcome is, you know, whatever you've defined it to be. Sure. Um, but I think I would say that, you know, to the 15-year-old self, that might be a little heavy for a 15-year-old. No, um, but I think, you know, being able to say who you, who you are around on a regular basis is going to either add to your passion or it's going to diminish your passion. That's good. That's good. That little segment, we're going we're gonna to edit it out and put it up to the beginning so that people can see that segment first. I know my wife is furiously writing that down. You oh. got my wife. My, I could almost hear her yell "Amen" downstairs. So, uh -huh. so that's those. Are, so that's a really good nugget. That's some good stuff. That's some good stuff. Now let's try, time travel a little one more time. Let's time travel one more time. Let's go seven years ahead. Okay. Now, no longer fifteen-year-old Sarah Millette. Let's, let's go to age 22, 24. Uh, right. What advice would you give to a young teacher who they are teaching? Yeah. Their, it's their first year. Um, and they're, you know, they're out of college. They may have some YMCA experiences or other things, but they're, they're standing in front of these kids for the first time. What, what, what advice would you give to them? And what disciplines do they need as a young teacher to succeed? Yeah. So to kind of pull from your teacher toolbox and be a little bit hokey with my response, um, this question really made me think about a message that I had shared prior to COVID with, um, I guess it would have been the 1920 cohort of new teachers that came in. I'm always um, really excited to have the opportunity during um, new teacher work week to come and to speak with them for, you know, 10, 15 minutes and hopefully impart some level of knowledge or wisdom that may stick with them and help them ride the waves of that first year of teaching. Um, and I called it the marigold effect. And so um, there's this thing called companion gardening. And I don't know if you're a gardener. I love gardening, but I do not have a green thumb. I think it's very cathartic and therapeutic. I like, you know, being in the dirt, but I'm not great at it. But um, it's something that I've learned about in relation to complementary to each other. So if you um, are a gardener, you may know that marigolds are a superb plant. When you plant them, vegetables and other flowers will blossom. What you do not want to do is begin planting near a walnut tree because whether you knew it or not, a walnut tree is toxic. And so not only does it give off an odor that is less than desirable, but it also um, will omit like poisonous gases and things that are harmful to the things around it. So I gave um, the year I shared kind of this, this story with um, 
the new teachers, I had uh, my partner in crime, my admin assistant who like keeps me, you know, from um, dropping all those balls that I'm juggling in the air. Um, she helped me create pens. And it sounds really, it's again, it's a teacher hokiness in me, but pens. And at the end, there was a, a marigold. And I passed every teacher a pen with a marigold on the end. And I said, you must surround yourself with marigolds. Mm. As a first year teacher, you are in, at times, survival, celebration, and also you need to know who you can trust and, and rely on during those challenging times. And marigolds are the people that are walking in your building and are champions and cheerleaders of, of education that can take a negative situation and turn it into a learning experience and help support during challenging times. Now, having said that, you also, unfortunately, in every profession, have walnuts. And so as a a new teacher, you need to be conscious of who are you spending your time with? Are they lifting you up? Are they raising you up? Are they supporting you? Because if you find that right companion gardening technique, marigolds, then you will have the energy and you will have the motivation to push through that first year. And they will provide you with those those logistical details and those academic areas of expertise that you're still learning while your soul is being nurtured. Mm -hmm. You have to care for self first. If you care for self first by surrounding yourself with marigolds, then you're going to blossom and flourish in academics and teaching techniques. Mm good. That's good. I'm a Baptist preacher, so I will attribute you the first time I use that example. But after the second or third time, I'm just going to claim it as my own. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, and like good educators, I stole <laughs> it from someone else. I think it's um, Jennifer Gonzalez. So if you look Jennifer it up, Gonzalez. Jennifer Gonzalez, and the whole narrative is there. So you can you can steal as much as you want. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. That's a great analogy, a great analogy. Now, I saw a meme that reminded me of this next question. It said, be the administrator that you needed as a teacher, okay? And so my question is, when did you know it was time to move from the from the teaching side to the administration side? Sure, I think I've always been a strategic thinker. I like understanding the organizational mindset and how each puzzle piece fits together. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, to talk about the transition from teacher to principal and principal to maybe central office, um, each of those time periods, I felt that I either had acquired a new skill set that I think could potentially have a, a great a greater impact on a larger audience than I currently was working with, or I felt that we all have natural strengths that we try to impart on those we work with. And after having been a principal for nine years at one building, you know, it's one of those things where you start walking by the same classrooms and the same hangings in the hallway, and you start to not see them anymore because they're so familiar. And not that there's a level of complacency there, but it you almost start seeing, I'm ready for my next learning experience. And the people around me have grown We've grown together as much as possible, and we're both ready for the next opportunity for growth. And so specifically when I was a principal, I felt I had finished my doctorate. I had a, had a, 
a large network of new learning. Um, and I had been there for nine years and I had given the best Sarah Calveric had to give. And I had, I could identify where we had come from and where we had gone to. And I was so proud of those areas and maybe some of the areas that remained hadn't grown because I wasn't the right leader to bring about that transformation. Like maybe I could do a single transaction in that area, but I couldn't get us from transactional to transformational. And so it was time for me to bring my gifts to a new environment and to learn and grow while someone else came in and brought their gifts to get them to that next level. I also, and I say this, this might not come across as polished, but I'm also not a, a job chaser. Um, I'm not one that is, I, I, I do like to say that I'm, I'm never satisfied. Like personally, I always like to, to keep pushing myself to, to learn more, but I'm not one that needs the title that comes along with it. I like the challenge and the work and the colleagues. Um, so I cried like a baby when I left my principalship. It was, I, I really, I love that work. It but then I loved being a director of HR and I loved being an assistant soup. And if you asked me, and you may have Tony, if I wanted to be a soup, I would have said, no, I don't think I desire being a superintendent, but now I'm equally as passionate about what I'm doing now. Um, than I've done in each of those other positions. Sure. Well, that's a great segue. Uh, you manage for those from my audience who doesn't, who, you know, who may not know you, you, you manage a large educational workforce in a rural county. You work easily, at least the year that I covered you, you work easily 60 hours a week, at least when I covered the county. What organizational disciplines do you recommend for new executives taking over similar roles? Leadership, I think, is a lifestyle. It's, it's not a job. It's not a nine-to-five job, and that's not diminishing any other career path, but you have to immerse yourself in an educational organization to reap the fruits of your labor that you're hoping to aspire to. Um, you have to know your people as people. You have to know your community. What is the historical story of the stakeholders you're serving? You need to be visible. Um, all of that requires time. And so, you know, I, my gift is not necessarily balance, but some of the things that I know that help me create better balance are having, you know, a network of support. So I'm, my, my parents are local. Um, my husband stayed home for 10 years while I pursued my career. And that's a massive um, sacrifice that was also simultaneously a blessing. Um, I have many friends that have helped support our three kids getting from point A to point B. So that, that personal support network helps me achieve some balance. Um, but then you have to surround yourself by people that are better than you are. You know, I've got Marcia Stevens, who's currently the, the Commonwealth School Business Official of the Year. I've heard Monroe, who's, you know, just recognized by the VASCD organization um, as an innovative leader. Dr. Rollins Fells and the rest of our board is the school board of the year. I'm surrounded by awesomeness and that, make, that makes me better. And it also allows me 
to believe in the processes we've created. And in my absence, it's a well-oiled machine. That there's capacity building, there's communication, and all of those things allow you to be out of the visibility scenario for a moment in time, and we don't miss a beat. Um, so balance, if you ask my husband, he'd probably say no way. Um, <laughs> but um, I think those structures, those intentional you know, structures help me and would help a, another leader coming in. Um, but leadership's a lifestyle. Now, with that exhausting schedule, um, I've seen a lot of executives like you see, the, you know, I study the presidency. So, you you know, you see people go into office and they look young and then they leave office and they <laughs> look terrible. And I've seen the same thing in corporate in the corporate world. And I've seen the same thing even in the military where a general leaves a big command and, you know, he's not even in shape anymore. And, you know, uh, it, it, it can be pretty exhausting. With your exhausting schedule, how do you have enough time for fitness and health? How do you make time for fitness and health? You know, it's funny. Um, my children, I have a, a senior, a junior, and a seventh grader. And uh, the other day, I, my son went, Woo, mom, you are like, you're like President Obama up here. What do you got going on? <laughs> so um, I, I readily ran up to CVS and got my $10 box of color to help myself out. But um, you're right. You're right. Also, you know, typical aging is taking place. But um, I think for me, exercise is something I've always had an affinity for. So when it is not present in my life, I just holistically don't feel centered. So that is not something that I have to necessarily work hard to build in because I do enjoy it. So it it brings me um, those positive benefits. Um, So even like, I can't, I can't tell if you can see, but if I shift myself, you'll see right here, I've got little hand weights there and over to this corner over here, I've got a little exercise ball. So even on the nights that I'm here for a really long time, I have my sneakers behind my desk. Um, I throw my sneakers on. You'll see me walking out on the track, walking around campus, walking past the baseball team. Um, before I'm going to a board of supervisors meeting, Uh, you know, in between, I'm not a big lunch taker. I tend to eat and work at the same time. Um, I think many educators do. Um, So every now and then, if I feel like I say, when your thumb is numb, your brain is drained. (laughs) So when I feel that I stand up and I'll, I'll get the weights out. And so that's, I just kind of build it in. Um, But you can't serve from an empty vessel. Mm. You just can't. Um, You have compassion fatigue. This year we have screen fatigue. Mm. All of these things are legitimate. And so someone shared a story recently with me and it really resonated with me. It was about two lumberjacks. Um, and they said, these lumberjacks both were working long hours. They worked, you know, let's say they worked 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Hard work, manual labor out there in all of the elements. And the first lumberjack, he, everyone described him as like nose to the grind, never taking breaks. Like he was, you know, chopping all that wood and everyone saw him working and busy. The other lumberjack took a five, 10 minute break every two hours to sharpen his ax. And at the end of the day, they took count of productivity. And to no surprise of possibly you and myself, 
the person that took time to sharpen their axe was actually more productive than the person that everyone perceived to be the worker bee out there, you know, nose to the grind and not taking time for self-care and mm. sharpening his or her own personal axe. Mm. So I am going to hold that story. I haven't, you're the first person I've shared that with. I literally just got it a few weeks ago and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I needed that. I needed right. to hear that. Right. And we need to gift our leaders and our educators with that story because they must care for themselves or they can't care for others. Um, and that, that needs to be remembered. And that's why we're growing our wellness programs and the eight dimensions of wellness um, and how we're building that into our leadership retreats and um, offering employee assistance programming to all staff members, not just those that are on our insurance, because we know you have to you have to be well from all facets. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Now, uh, what book do you recommend that has helped you the most outside of the Bible? What book do you recommend that has helped you the most on your life journey? Thanks. Thanks for the disclaimer there. <laughs> um, so I'm going to look at this, I guess, Tony, from three different angles. I'm going to going to look at it from the professional lens, the personal lens, and then the, the um, I guess, the, oh, I don't know, personal growth lens. So in terms of professional books, I, I read, it's, I'm reading incessantly, I'm always reading, and whether it's a book in hand or a podcast or it's a, an audio book, because I have a 45-minute commute both ways. I'm always listening to something. Um, So two books. One I use for University of Richmond. I teach a data for decision-making class to master's and post-master's students. Um, And, you know, I like process. It's all about how you build a culture of collaboration around data because data can be really scary for educators um, to use and it makes people have a lot of negative emotion. And so building that culture and then a process that's replicable that really helps minimize anxiety, provide clear parameters and help people be productive. And so I I love that. I'm passionate about that. And so I use that in, in my work with these these young leaders. Um, the second book that I just finished reading, um, I read because I was um, associated with the Virginia Association for School Superintendents. They ran a leadership academy this year, and I was a participant. And so we had to do a capstone project. So my capstone is called Disrupting Inequity, a K-12 Playbook. So in the process of doing all of this research and putting together my capstone project, I read a book called Cultural Competence Now. And so I think earlier, as we were talking, I was talking about cultural competence as this this spectrum um, that, you know, you can have destructive cultural competence, and then you can have proficient cultural competence, and then there's a whole level of of knowledge and skills that fall in between. And that was a really profound experience for me, not only because, well, I recognize that there's a spectrum of cultural competence, but I hadn't really thought about it from a more scientific approach of where I fall as a person and as a leader and how where you fall impacts the choices you make in the classroom, impacts the choices you make as a leader, um, as a community member. Um, So that is something that I'm looking forward to using because not only is it the spectrum, but I've created some activities that help you digest some of the information and then also um, found a great self-reflection survey that helps you really dig deeper into 
your skills in that area. So that's my professional world. Um, in my self growth world, um, I'm going to pair this with my husband. He may not be happy I'm putting this out there, but we just did, and you and your wife should do this, and you maybe could do a group in your ministry. Sure. We did um, 10 great dates. Okay. Okay. So it's a really short book that has, um, and there were 10 couples that did this in our neighborhood virtually throughout the pandemic. And we, every week we got together on Wednesday nights for 30 minutes. It was fast and furious. You read the short little snippet about whatever topic, like communication, faith, um, parenting, you read it, to, you read it separately, and then you have to go on a date. Now, we I'll tell you, pathetic as it is, we're not good daters. We realize that. <laughs> we're good at being together, but not dating each other. Um, sure. So a couple times we were at Kroger at the Starbucks and at a table talking and talked through the questions that are at the back of each chapter. Um, and then we would come together and share out as a group. That was huge because here we are in the middle of a pandemic. I'm busy. He's busy. Works full time now. And so it just really, really anchored our marriage. And, and I'm grateful that we have a, a strong marriage, but it was just good reminders of why we're putting the work in. So oh. that was my personal growth. And then just beach reads. I mean, I don't get to have guilty pleasure reading very often. So when I do, I want something light, something that's not going to challenge my, my morals and values. <laughs> I want a beach read. So right now I am reading Between Sisters. Um, okay. and it's good. I'm only about 50 pages in and ask me next month. I might only be on page 75 because you know, <laughs> I got to carve that time out, but that's kind of how I chunk my, my reading. Okay. Well, we'll put all of those in the show notes and we'll encourage people to buy them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and those will be our Amazon affiliate links. So everyone tuning in when you, when you click, you're actually helping the podcast. Awesome. So, uh, now, at Becoming Discipline, we examine discipline or organization in the following areas. Spirituality, mental discipline, physical discipline, emotional intelligence, financial discipline, time management, and home and data organization. Dr. Calveric, which of these do you consider your stronger points and which do you believe needs some work? And, I, and most people need me to repeat it twice, so I'll, I'll say it again. Spirituality, mental discipline, physical discipline, emotional intelligence, financial discipline, time management, and home and data organization. Uh, I think, and possibly you could gather this just from, you know, our conversation thus far. You know, I, I think the mental discipline and the time management and the data organization are innate to what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And then it spills into the household and how I hope to run, you know, alongside my spouse in an orderly environment that my kids can flourish in. Um, I think, I, you know, just to be real with you, I think during the pandemic, my spirituality has suffered. Sure. Um, we are Catholic and we appreciate going to mass and hearing the, you know, the, the priest share insights with us and then figuring out how that pertains to our week and finding those God sightings throughout the week that, you know, help pull all of that together. And obviously with church being shut down and being virtual, I wasn't as diligent as I needed to be in filling that part of my, my spirit. So I think I have work to do in re-entering as we phase out of the pandemic and kind of bringing my children back to center with that. Um, 
and I'm, I know that I'll, that will accomplish it because it is important to each of us, but it's just, you know, making that, that change, that behavioral change that we've fallen into patterns in throughout the, the health crisis. Um, but I think outside of that, I would say, you know, that continued focus on emotional intelligence, um, I think because I have a high stress tolerance and I have, I am such a focused person and I, I want to make sure that I'm aware of everyone else's emotional intelligence quotient. You know, I want to, I want to make sure that that nurturing part of my personality, um, you know, wraps around those more formal decisions that I'm making. Um, I don't ever want to be perceived as um, someone that has not been an active listener. Um, and so I think my personality tends to be like if you did, um, what's that personality test that were many moons ago everyone did? The disc assessment? Or? Uh, something like that. I think you'd probably find I'm like your, you know, straight and narrow leader. So sometimes that can minimize more that I want to make sure that that is not how I'm, I'm perceived or how I'm portraying myself. So I do, you know, hit my, hit my brakes sure. and surround myself with people that um, are thoughtful in their thinking and that look at um, the emotional aspect of, of decision making. Um, so I, I really do, when we're building a leadership team, I'm really, that North, South, East, West protocol, um, I don't know if you've ever done that protocol before, you can find it on national school reform, but it really helps you evaluate work style preferences. And I, I use that in interviews because I want to make sure I'm not getting all North, all North, which is our doers task oriented, like, like I am. I need some of those Southern qualities of nurturance and, and warmth and awareness. So. Well, another area where I've uh, grown to admire you is when I became a Facebook friend of yours. And there's a lot of people I've met who are on the job as, you know, they can they can be as professional as Dr. Calvary. But then to have to see that you had a, you know, a robust family life along with that, that's really impressive. Like, wow, how can she do this and do this at the same time? It's just, it's amazing. Now, uh, let's time travel one last time. Your mother, what advice would you give to the young mom who that baby has just been placed on her chest in the in the room? OK. And, you know, she still has a, a job that she has to go back to in three months or four months or whatever. What advice would you give to that young mother on being able to or trying to handle it all? What advice would you give to that young mom? Yeah, at the risk of sounding redundant, um, I think, you know, hold true to your beliefs family and faith and keep that at your core center. That's your true North and, and make sure that um, you're maximizing your time. And I, I think you have to weed your garden to do that. You know, as a new mom, the priorities shift instantly or, or should shift instantly. And so, you know, weed that garden, like literally list, what are all of your demands, you know, write them on separate little strips and then sort them. You know, I do this, with buildings too, you know, if people are starting to say the culture is off or you know, we're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Our plates runneth over, feed the garden. It's time to, to pause and reflect, get a, a flower that's really healthy, right. put that picture there, a flower that's wilting that needs some TLC and then a dead flower. And then take each of those time demands that you are 
Maybe you're volunteering. Maybe you are, you know, babysitting for your sister all the time. Maybe you are um, working three hours beyond your contractual time. List all of those demands and then sort them into what's a healthy flower? What's a must do? What is something that's worth the effort, but just needs a little watering to be maximized? And what is dead and not yielding outcomes that are contributing to my life as a mom? And weed Mm -hmm. that, get that off your plate and help focus on the things that are most critical. And you know what? That weeding the garden, it, it changes. Six months later, a year later, five years later, we all have to stop and take stock or do an, an asset inventory of where are we spending our money? Where are we spending our time? Where are we emotionally contributing and determine, is it, is it reaping? Are we sowing the, the right results? Good, good stuff. Good stuff. Oh man. I know my wife is loving that downstairs. <laughs> Weed uh, your garden. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you've given you've been very generous with your time. Uh, we would like at this time to open things up for Anything that that you want to talk about that's going on in the county? Are there any nonprofit endeavors or anything in the county or anything having to do with your your uh, your uh, educational institution that you run that you'd like to focus on right now? Sure. Um, you know, I think communities are a reflection of the schools that they choose to keep, and you know, in Caroline, we have over 550 square miles. Um, That is one of the largest geographic counties in the Commonwealth. And so that brings about a variety of access um, hurdles that we have to really be cognizant of. Um, So I think, you know, in the work that we do, you know, when we use our strategic plan, you know, holding true to those four goals and figuring out how do we draw the community in? Are we working intentionally with our parent population? Are we working intentionally with our faith leaders, with faith advisory, finding those common themes that we're all working on, but we could be smarter and align our arrows so we're all moving in the same direction because we're serving the same community? Um, Are we working with our business partners to create paths for our students for 3E readiness so that they have that internship, externship opportunity? So for me, it's it's about the betterment of Caroline County. Certainly, every choice I make is for the good of CCPS, but ultimately, it's a we our us mentality. And truthfully, I would love to be hip to hip in the future. This is year four of a five-year strategic plan, Pathways 2022. So next year, it'll be all about immersion interviews, sitting side by side, asking questions. What, what's working well? What would you like to see us change? Where do you want to see us in the next five years? And using all of that data and compiling a new strategic plan and a unicorn utopic scenario would be that alongside us would be the county creating a strategic plan or revisiting their current strategic plan and ensuring that schools are a thread in their work and that everything that they would like to achieve we're working on in relation to schools and everything we would like to achieve they they are aware of and that we can have this symbiotic relationship um, to continue the growth and the goodness of of the division in the county that is awesome that is awesome there's nothing more important 
there is nothing more important. Well, Dr. Calvary, I can tell you we've we've done around 24 interviews. Uh, and while we were getting our product, you know, we were getting used to the battle rhythm of creating these and the production value and everything. We haven't put any uh, any advertising dollars toward it. But I can tell you this will be the first one where we put advertising dollars because we believe in you. And we believe that all that you have to, to offer, not just our county, but Virginia and educators as a whole, we want to thank you for coming on. You didn't have to do this. You didn't need to do this. We truly appreciate you. You have the last word. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? And just to kind of keep in mind, you know, audience, knowing your audience is important. Uh, our audience is typically 30 to 55 year olds. And they're just people that are, I, call, I kind of call them the Get Better Club. They're trying to become better versions of themselves. Uh, what what do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? The thing that comes to mind is no matter what your field is, embrace education, awareness, and advocacy. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself, be knowledgeable, help those around you understand what your mission and vision are, and then advocate and do what is essential. Take action in order to um, move from from um, I guess those one time shots of, of action to aspiration. And so if you can use education, awareness, and advocacy in your field, then, you know, nothing can stop you. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Dr. C. We want to thank Dr. Sarah Calvert for coming on. We believe that she gave us valuable content in order to help our audience become a better version of themselves. If you would like to see more of Becoming Discipline, if you want to encourage us and ensure that we are able to stay on the air, please check out our Patreon website at www.patreon.com forward slash Becoming Discipline.